random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, I'm Dan DiDio, author of the young adult novel Hide or Seek, and for Frank Miller Presents, I'm working on Ancient Enemies, Wraith and Son, and The Greater Good. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with now a official two-timer, formerly of the Distinguished Competition, and now Frank Miller presents, and also he's doing graphic novels. We are joined with Dan DiDio. Dan, good evening. Welcome back. Good evening. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Being part of Twice Marvelous is pretty exciting for me, considering I wasn't allowed to go anywhere near Marvel for 20 years. You did go near my copy of Marvel Comics number 1000 at New York Comic Con, though, and you defaced it. I was, I was so upset. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's, it's, it's a different me. It's an older me. It's a newer me. I don't know. I just don't do that stuff anymore. But uh, this is fun to be on. Thank you for having me. So, Dan... Right now, I saw the other day on social media, it was a picture of you and Jeff Lemire and a copy of your brand new graphic novel, Hide or Seek. Yes. How did that come about? Uh, not just the well, photo with Jeff, but... First, it's not a graphic novel. It's a prose novel. Okay. okay? Which, is, uh, which was an interesting thing for me because it was a new area and something that I really wanted to try and do. Uh, so the, it was a different skill set, a different muscle had to work, and it was kind of exciting to actually see this all the way through to completion and, and actually get it published. Um, I've been excited by doing this book for a while, and uh, what was great for me was to get a chance to see Jeff Lemire, uh, who I just adore. Uh, he's one of the true great creators, just a nonstop creative machine. And uh, actually, it was kind of fun for me to show him something that I did instead of getting a chance to always see the stuff that he did. So it, 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 was, it, was, it, was, a, it was a fun moment, and uh, I, was, I was happy to see him, but more importantly, I was happy to give him a copy of my book. And that must be the coolest feeling in the world to be able to have something like that, like somebody you admire and be like, hey, here's something I've done. Enjoy. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, a, it's a different feeling. I mean, you know, for me, you know, I've always been involved on the creative side. I mean, even before with DC, when I was working in TV, I was involved in animation. I was writing scripts for some of the animated series I was working on. Uh, but I always more gravitated to the corporate side or the business side of what was going on uh, just because I like the steady paycheck. And ultimately, I've always wanted to do a lot of things, a lot, of, a lot more writing. And uh, here I am now, you know, really at the tail end of a career, but really enjoying myself in a way that I didn't think was possible. And uh, it's a little daunting. It's, a little, it's really disconcerting uh, because it, you're stretching out a skill set um, and also you're, you're trying to pave new territory and have people see you in a different light. And, uh, and that's the intriguing part. But I'm hoping that the quality of the work and the stories get people excited and that's what they really embrace more so than anything else. Now, what is Hide or Seek, and what is, what, why should readers want to check this out? Well, you know what? It, it was interesting because, you know, naturally, whenever I, I write, you sort of want to write things you, you enjoy. And I, I enjoy superhero storytelling, and I, and I know the way superhero stories have changed over the years. But the story that I wanted to tell really is it's about a young kid uh, who has a really on-off relationship with his, with his father, much closer to his mother. Uh, doesn't know him that well. And then, lo and behold, one day, 
he, we find out he lives in a world of superheroes, and one of those heroes is murdered, and then he realizes that hero that was murdered was his, actually his father. And before he can even understand that, him and his mother are whisked away into a witness protection program because of the threat that is coming to them. Uh, what killed his father might come after them. So he's put away in a, a small town. He has to assume a brand-new identity. And then he has to re-examine his life. He has to examine all his relationships. He's starting to build new relationships with people, and, and, and he's, his own relationship with his mother starts to be strained because he finds out she's been lying to him his whole life about his, about his father. And then what you find out, not only is he in the town, um, but the people that are in the town have also been re- relocated there. And they were some of the, the worst villains that his, his father ever fought. And so now he has to develop his own relationship with these people, and the story starts to build from that point. Well, that's kind of a really neat. I'm intrigued on that whole twist, just with the title there. And, I mean, no, not and, it's or. It, it's the and orth concept, perhaps, but now it's not that. And I don't even know if Hide or Seek was even brought up, published as something that, you know, or is just a public domain to be able to use that particular title. I, you know what? I love the title because, you know, it's, it, it starts off as it feels like everything's a little bit of a children's game, but then it becomes much more complex as it goes forward. And he feels like his parents have been hiding from him his entire life. And now he's forced into hiding. And then ultimately he has to make a choice. He says, do I stay concealed or do I find out the secrets, uh, what's, what's been going on all around me, and then maybe learn even more about my parents than I never knew before. And just to back up, though, you said it's a prose novel. Uh, would that come under just general fiction or anything more specific than that? Oh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a young adult novel. Um, mm-hmm. I, it was a, a voice and tone that I, wanted to, that I wanted to bring and what I feel most comfortable with. You know, from my days working in television and animation, I used to do a lot of Saturday morning TV. So what I was trying to do is really get into a spot where I captured that same sense of feel, that same sense of excitement, um, you know, and, and also hopefully be able to capture a venture where you have, you know, a 16-year-old protagonist and something that kids can relate to. So then by the same token, it not being a graphic novel, it being prose, you're saying, what, there's no pictures? Oh, Eddie, that's Eddie, a, Eddie. That's exactly. There's, there's a very beautiful cover and back cover done by Kenneth Ruckford, who I've worked with during my time at D.C. on Sideways, one of my favorite artists. The um, story behind Hard to Seek is actually interesting because it actually started as a Netflix pitch. We, uh, I got a phone call uh, from a producer friend that wanted to bring a superhero project to Netflix. He was solicited for it. And uh, so I called up Kenneth. Kenneth came with some wonderful designs. I created the story around it. Um, and ultimately, I went and we went and pitched it to, to Netflix. The day after Netflix canceled Jupiter's Legacy, um, and uh, literally, the woman who had solicited the superhero story basically said that they're not in the business of superheroes anymore. But in creating the Bible, I created this full world with a lot of characters and a lot of sets and a lot of potential. And now we're sitting in the middle of COVID. We're all locked in our houses. And I just couldn't let that story sit, so I decided to do it in a way that allowed me to tell it by myself. And uh, and we pulled it together and uh, and turned it into a novel. Hmm. Now, in regards to the book, where can people get it? Right now, it's uh, it's available mostly online. Uh, it's available through BarnesandNoble.com. It's available through Amazon. Uh, it's easy to order. Um, it's in some stores. Uh, it's in some comic shops. You know, um, it's. I'm going through a small publisher, so we have some limited distribution, but the reality is uh, it's easy to find online. It's available on on any of the sites that sell books. Now, is it going to be available with you at a convention if you're going to be at there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the fun part about this this year is that 
Um, the conventions, the convention circuit's back in full swing, and my time with Frank Miller Presents really is pushing me back into the convention mode. Um, again, we're, we, Frank and I are only doing a couple of books per month, um, and because of that, we might get lost on a shelf. So really making a real concerted effort to get out to the shows and get a chance to meet the fans and hand sell product and get a chance to show them what we're working on and get people as excited as we are about it. And so I'm bringing this book along with it. Now, in regards to Frank Miller Presents, I, I have a bunch of questions, and we're going to do like a mini State of the Union address in regards sure. to Frank Miller Presents. But in regards to Hide or Seek, what, you know, gets me is like I love the fact that you're doing the convention circuit for this because you get to see like also some of the target audience of what this book is for, you know? Oh, listen, you know what it is right now? I mean, right now the market and a lot of these markets are built on recognizable product. So anything new uh, gets met with some hesitation. So the only way you can get out there and see the fans is to be able to talk about it yourself. And one thing I really enjoy talking about are things that excite me. So I have no trouble going out to a show and talking about these books because I feel really proud of the material. And I think it could be something fun that they, people, especially fans that are comic shows, would enjoy. Now, you know, in regards to the convention circuit, like you said, it is back in full swing. And, you know, going to New York Comic Con, seeing you there at a show where, to be completely honest, it was always next to impossible to see you there. I never, ever got to see you. And then this, you know, this past year, I could not escape from you for at conventions. Like, I saw you so many times. I'm like, this is good. I like this. <laughs> yeah, I don't, have, I don't have people scheduling every moment of my day anymore. The only person doing it is myself. As a matter of fact, I'm actually going to attend San Diego Comic-Con this year. More as a fan than anything else. And I'm kind of looking forward to that just to be able to really just take it all in again and enjoy the experience more so than dread it. And, you know, there was a point there, once you're in the corporate world, you start to dread those events more than you actually enjoy them. And when you go to these things, you know, going, you know, going back to your beginnings as a fan of all this stuff and going to conventions back in the day, like what is the biggest difference you've seen in these, uh, all these years since? You know, it's, it's, it's strange because I've watched it evolve. I mean, my very first convention, believe it or not, was in 1970. Um, I went to a show called Lunacon where the guest was Isaac Osmanoff and Len Wein. I wow. still have the program. Um, and then we did the Star Trek conventions, then the Phil Sully conventions, and then the Great Easterns. And then it just kept on growing and growing and growing. And you kept on seeing this really pick, pick up. What I'm seeing right now, though, is that evolution away from comics and more about the celebrity aspect of the conventions, and I think that's a shame. Um, and you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in, in going to the shows where they have that grassroots feel, and it really is about the comics and the fans celebrating comics, and those are the shows that I really want to be at because uh, those are the people we're trying to reach. I really wish that it was still going on, but you would have been a perfect fit for East Coast Comic Con over in Secaucus, New Jersey. That was like one of the best conventions because first off the show is promoted by an actual cartoonist so like he was getting people like he likes and it's it was wild well, i mean most of the stuff that we do especially in comics it's a labor of love um and you know and and that was oh that's the one of the pluses and minuses of the business because it's it's more of a hobby than the business and we're all finding a way to to make a living we're doing something we really love and enjoy um and listen i used to work in publicity at abc and i used to find ways to invite comic creators to come to the sets of the soap operas just so I could meet them. And I even worked out a crossover between one of the actors of All My Children and an issue of Second Life of Dr. Mirage from Valiant Comics, just mm. because I love comics. <laughs> All in. Jeez. Going back to it again, uh, Dan, hide or seek. Um, 
the process, well, some of the process, meaning uh, how large, how, how big of a volume of this did it, t- did it start out as and how much did it come down to? How much did you not get in the final product? Well, here's the thing. When I first started the book, you know, I, I actually asked for a little help because I never had written a novel before. So I got some people in to help me structure and lay out the pacing of it, which I thought was really important because I knew television pacing, I knew comic book pacing, I didn't have novel pacing. And, you know, and how do you, when you do chapter breaks and things like that, it, it was really essential for me to get that rhythm. And once I got that rhythm, then I had the full story already laid out and I had the, the first two, three, four chapters already written. Um, because they were that was stuck in my head, and I had to get it on paper. It was it was a big moment that I really needed to to set right to really set the tone of the book. Um, but the the real interesting one was the editor that I worked with, because what I did is I tried to tell a story told from the first person, from the not from the first person, but from the from the point of view of the kid. And it was always you're discovering things along with them, so you see his perspective every step of the way. So it's really a book about discovery. And turns into a little bit of a mystery as as his world starts to unravel around him, and he tries to navigate through it. It's probably something, yeah, like you're saying, from the young person's point of view, because that's your audience, that's who you're going after. And I don't know how often how much we see that uh, in general, especially since all of us are out of that phase. I, I think for the most part. Yeah, and that that was and that was it because ultimately, like I said, you have to everything's being challenged, and the important thing for my lead character, Theo, uh, is that he has to make decisions about who to believe and not to believe. You know, he could be very much distrustful of everyone, including, including his own family, but he has to make choices about where he wants to put his trust, and more importantly, how does he manage living in a town that is not exactly what it seems to be. I just think it's going to resonate for just from the basic premise, like you, like you set it up with earlier, um, you know, get, get the reader in early and uh, keep them going for the ride or her or them and uh, again just just hooked in there and wondering what's what's going to come about next and again there's going to be parts it sounds like that's definitely going to be relatable it, it that makes it the most fun i mean it's it's uh, you know i and and honestly i, I pulled if everybody asks where'd you get you know what do you you know what experiences you pull your ideas from and and actually it wasn't for myself it was actually watching my own kids uh watching myself we had moved across country um, and seeing my kids try to work their way into a new school from one coast to the other and how uncomfortable it was and myself starting a new job at that time, how much I wasn't available to them and how much they had to manage that on their own and the, the choices they made and how difficult it was and what was right and what was wrong because basically you were in a whole new environment with a whole new set of rules and you have to figure it out almost on your own about what's the best way to proceed. So now, going over to Frank Miller Presents, it is a hell of a thing that you guys are doing in the realm of comics. And first off, I also want to say thank you for how you guys are doing the model of Frank Miller Presents because it's, you know, it's an $8 book, which I'm like, eh, but when I have it in my hands, it's a lot of content, and it feels like, okay, I got two months' worth of stuff, I'm good. And that's one of those things where I'm glad about that. You also see the love and how the quality is of the work. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. There's no infrastructure. There's no staff. I mean, literally, Frank, myself, and our, and our partner, Selene Thomas, we're doing the whole thing. And um, it's fascinating because, you know, it's, it's amazing to do something when you had a staff of 160. It's amazing when you have to do it all yourself. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, I mean, 
the, the challenges you're faced with every day about just getting your books made can be distracting from just trying to do the creative aspect of what you want to do. But that's one of the reasons why we're keeping the books limited. We want to keep make sure all the quality is on the page. Um, Frank is very um, insistent that we make sure that but we have the highest level of quality, and I feel the same exact way. And that we we push art first. We want these to be visually exciting books, and we did go larger books with a larger price. But also, at the end of the day, the value is much greater than you might see in a regular three ninety nine comic. But on the other side, we are doing three ninety nine comics too because we know there's an expectation that comes with it. So it, we're not locked into one format, one price. We're really adjusting it based upon the material and what works best for the story. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice, or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. And again, I think that's a fantastic way of doing that because, again, you know, when I get a comic book for uh, $5, like my, my hot take recently on Twitter was I'm talking about uh, I got a second printing of a book and it was still $5. And I'm just like, why is that $5? Shouldn't it be, you know, maybe like go a dollar off each sub- subsequent printing, you know? Because yeah. it's. Oh, no, no. It's, 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 it's uh, honestly, we're just constantly. I always I use the analogy we constantly raise our price and we constantly shrink our audience. So your, your margins, are theoretically, you're making the same amount of money with less people. And sooner or later, we're going to be selling the $1,000 comic to 1,000 people, and that'll be the left. That's all stuff in the comic is. And, and I'm not going to say the name of the book uh, offhand, though, but let's just say it's, oh, um, I don't know, Moopersan. <laughs> but in regard, <laughs> <laughs> no one will ever know. Anyway, so, again, you know, I love the idea, though, of all of these books and Again, it's not one of those things where I have to go to my, you know, comic shop and oh no, now my pull list is bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like, okay, cool, I got my stuff. I don't have to worry about the next one until, you know, two months from now or a month and a half from now. And right. as someone, you know, who gets his books, it's appreciated because like sometimes you'll have a character and then you get all the uh, subsequent related titles. I'm a big spawn guy. And Oh, there's so much now, and yeah, <laughs> it's like it, it, there's the, the real urgency to oversaturate the market with things that are recognizable, and it really crowds out the new ideas and the new concepts out of the out of the out of the space. And we we know we have an uphill battle because even with Ronin, for Frank, I mean, it's not his most recognizable property, but for him, it was a passion project for him. He had the idea of doing Ronin sequel probably since the day he finished day after he finished the first series. Um, but this was his first opportunity to do it, and to do it as the signature book for a company that bears his name, I think was, was, was important for him because he felt that was the start of his creator-owned career. So there's no reason why he shouldn't do the same for this book. 
And it's so cool to see him, by the way, as one of those pioneers in the realm of comics in more ways than one. Literally, the creator-owned stuff. You know, you hear, like, the image guys. You hear uh, all sorts of other creators in that realm. But, you, you know, it's kind of one of those, like, yeah, I do sometimes forget, oh, yeah, Frank is one of them. And one of the most important ones is Sin City. And I got to ask, what's the update on the uh, Sin City? Yeah, the, the interesting thing was that we're he he's actually started breaking out the first story. The first story he actually wrote already for um, for Mila Manera. Uh, we have a Mila Manera book, which is going to be Sin City set into the the current Sin City time, which is the first time anybody other than Frank has drawn uh, Sin City, um, and that was a big deal for him. And uh, and what he's doing is that he's preparing a uh, a Sin City Western. Um, and I thought it would be out this year. We're probably getting closer to either the end of this year or beginning of next, only because he's really focused on doing Ronin. We ran into a couple of problems. It was a much more complicated book than we anticipated, um, and Philip Tan needed a little bit of help. So actually Frank stepped in, and he actually drew, This is we're saying this for the first time, drew the entire fourth issue. So we're getting the third, third issue prepped right now um, from Philip. Frank is finishing up the fourth issue. And then Philip's jumping back on for the fifth issue, and then we'll see where we go from there. So once Frank finishes a four, it's over to Sin City, and then we're back in business. Hell yeah. Now, in regards to the Frank Miller Presents, one thing I noticed, I'm not sure if it's changed since, but I'm a Comixology user, and I never see Frank Miller Presents on there. Has any of the, Have any of the books been released on the service yet? No, no, we haven't done anything digitally yet, um, and that's my choice. Um, we really, we were very much, we're both print physical guys and we want, didn't want to distract from what we were creating on the print side. Um, the thought is to do the collection digitally instead of having people pick up the, um, the individual issues. I think it's better for them to read the issues in print and then have the availability of both print and digital for when we do collection. I like that. That's a re- that is a really good idea because a lot of people like myself, you know, like I'll wait for the, uh, trade or I'll wait for the, uh, you know, the digital compendium and to be able to read it all in one go. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, I mean, when you're looking digitally to have digital single issues and a collection, it's actually the same exact thing. Um, literally the same exact thing. So it seems almost redundant. And I'd rather if fans want to buy and read a digital experience, then I want to make sure we get the best value one, which would be buying the entire book. As a digital book. Now, how close are we to uh, the collected editions of some of these books? Well, actually, the first collected edition is uh, scheduled for Pandora to come out at the end of August. Um, because that book, we actually did that in more, much more traditionally. We did an oversized first issue, double-sized first issue, and then uh, we went to more traditional comic size and monthly with the subsequent issues. And the sixth issue will come out in June, uh, and then we'll have the full collection of issues one through six uh, at the end of August. Now, are they going to... Because one of the things I really love about the collected editions are the the whole supplemental material, such as, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff, scripts, and things like that, will there be any of those kind of things in this? Oh, yeah. We've got a ton of stuff. I mean, the question is whether or not we're going to put that in the softcover collections, because we can do softcovers first, or save that material later when we might want to do a hardcover, a little more a little more upscale uh, product. But to get the book out the door, we're going to have the, we're going to have the, the full issues. And the, the good part is it, it, we want to make sure, again, <laughs> this is where the publisher in me kicks in, want to make sure it has a value price and it's a good buy uh, and the people get a, a good, exciting read from it all. And hopefully there'll be some extra bonus material in there to really help round it out. You want the book to be a good buy. You don't want the audience to be saying goodbye. Exactly. No, we want to make sure there's a lot of value in when you buy a book. 
Well, then there's the hard goodbye, isn't there? Oh, Eddie, Eddie Isn't that Eddie. what we talked you're, about you're, on one episode? You're right. You are right. Okay. <laughs> and Can we bring that up for a second here? The older stuff? What's that? Uh, just in, ter- in terms of, because um, I'm finding, of course, through the one we did talk about on a uh, You Haven't Read That episode, that there's multiple pa- stories, paperbacks, soft covers, and I'm not sure if they were um, wrapped uh, maybe with different printings, because I know they're they're yeah. numbered on the spines. Pa- Patreon.com slash the marvelous, where you can listen to. You haven't read that. That's exactly right. Anyway, how many were there all together, and are they all There's in seven? Seven. There are seven. Okay, I think I think I do have all of them in my possession. Well, because what Eddie's talking about with that, with like the spines and everything. For example, uh, over at uh, Titan, they're re-releasing the, uh, or they're going to be doing the Conan the Barbarian omnibuses, and they're going to look like the Marvel omnibuses on the spines. And one thing that, you know, I think would be kind of cool if, you know, when you guys do the Sin City one, maybe, you know, do like the kind of similar spines because comic book fans have killer OCD. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was funny because when Frank wanted to do Ronin, he wanted to do it oversized. And I said, you're not going to be able to do that because everybody, I said, we have 40 years of people buying Ronin as a trade in traditional comic size. I know what it's like when those books don't sit side by side with each other. How upset people get. <laughs> like, the designer in me, I'm, I'm like, oh, no, please don't do what I think is going to happen. But it's like I love like some of those designs of the Frank Miller ones, like the uh, one yep. through seven of the uh, Sin Cities, where it's like the connecting spine yep. are so oh, freaking yeah, yeah. cool. I I love mean, he that. loves doing all that stuff, too. I mean, and. I mean, I'm going to leave it up to him on how he wants to do that. I mean, we're still a, way, a ways away from Sin City being collected or being taken care of. Plus, also, it's a slightly different book. Um, the Sin City that Frank's doing is a Western. It's set in the 1800s, and it's about, it really is the origin story of Basin City. And uh, so it sits a little differently than everything. But you did make an important point for me uh, that I forgot to mention earlier. The Pandora book is actually going to be collected in young adult size, but a six by nine, which really? is a little bit smaller than regular size, because we wanted to get that book in the hands of kids because we feel it's, uh, it's it really plays to that audience, and uh, we figured we were going to size and format it in a way that they might be more comfortable buying because it again fits very well with the books that they do buy in that size and format. And in regards to uh, the Sin City book, I'm excited for the Minara art, like. I love his art. Like, there's just something very special about, you know, how he manages to render, especially the female form and just what he can do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and he has carte blanche. I mean, you know, Frank's not coming in telling Minera to go imitate his style. He's, he wants Minera there to do being Renera and, and do the book in a, in a style that works to him. Um, I don't believe they're going to be doing it in color, though. He's using some gray tones on it um, in order to stay within the color palette of... Uh, of Sin City, but but it'll be all Monero when it comes to art. I just don't want to see that one yellow character come back. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. I don't want to see Monero draw him. <laughs> well, well, Dan, when you say uh, 1800s, uh, are we talking, I don't know how specific or uh, important it is, is it pre or post-Civil War, for example? Uh, it's 1858. Uh, it's basically post-Winchester. That was very important. Mm-hmm. The introduction, it, it takes place following the introduction of the Winchester rifle. All right, gotcha. So it's pre-Gold Rush. It's not 1885, Back to the Future Part 3. Okay. No, no. As much as, as, much as we wanted that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so many continuity errors we could correct. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, with Frank Miller Presents, one of the talents involved is Emma Kubert. And I got to say, yeah. like, 
once again, when I heard the announcement of Emma being involved with Frank Miller Presents, I was like, hell yeah, finally. Because, like, you look at the stuff that Emma's doing, she's a part of a legacy, a dynasty of comic book creators. And to see, you know, Emma alongside you guys, I was so damn happy. And I love Inkblot, for example. Like, Oh, no, we, we actually love Inkblot, but I mean, I've, I've known Emma for a really long time. Uh, and Frank and I both have worked with Joe and both worked with Andy and this is both of us working third generation Qbert. And what's fabulous about it, when you think about it, Emma has been trained by her grandfather and her father. She's taught at the Qbert school and yet she's still in this really mentoring position with Frank too, because they're, they're basically learning from each other. And they're, what they do is they get together every month or so, uh, to sit down and talk through plot and go over, go over layouts and ideas. And it's been this wonderful experience because, um, it really brings that true sense of collaboration that I think works so well in comics uh, to the forefront. This isn't about individual vision. This is about people really bringing their, their collective ideas together to elevate the property. And, you know, I, again, I just love seeing her stuff. And, like, to see her, the impact she's making in the realm of comics. Like, I've been, you know, following her career for a long time. You know, I'm friends with her on Facebook, and I've seen, like, her stuff, like, as it's evolving and evolving and evolving. And it's so cool to see, like, you know, a talent coming, you know, out there and doing their thing. Oh yeah, no, it's it's fabulous, and I mean, and just one of the smartest, <laughs> one of the nicest people you ever meet too, and incredibly talented, and never she never stops drawing. She is constantly sketching, constantly drawing, and uh, and I think that helps motivate Frank too. Um, you know, th- these guys they all feed off each other. You know, even unspoken words, they're you know they could sit around and both be sketching, and they have this just communicating through the through the visual art that they're creating. And, you know, like lately, speaking of Frank, you know, I've been looking at the uh, Marvel solicitations. And did you ever think you would see Frank Miller doing, you know, variant covers, original new content for Marvel in the year 2023? Because I didn't, and I'm pleased to see that. I, I can only say that I did see it coming in 2023 because I heard about, it, heard about it back in 2022. <laughs> well, sir, excuse me. <laughs> he called it. Okay. <laughs> If I knew you were that confused, I would have definitely put a bunny bet on it and cleaned up. <laughs> <laughs> like the sports almanac. No. Yeah. <laughs> Gray's sports almanac. <laughs> there you go. But what, you know, it gets me. Like, I saw the uh, Loki cover that he's doing, and I was like, oh, shit, I can't wait to get this. <laughs> so Yeah, no, they're, they're a lot of fun. And I, I kept on pointing out, he, he, has, he kept on, there's a lot of uh, Ditko that pulls out. He, he, I think he gravitates to a lot of the material that Ditko drew, because even when he drew the uh, Loki, I'm like, you know, Ditko did a good Loki. And he's like, ah, yeah, I remember that. And I'm mm. like, yeah, right. <laughs> and it's funny because, like, there, you know, uh, run is going to be ending very soon, and that means a new number one is going to have to happen, you know, especially because, hey, the character's going to have, you know, a TV show very soon. But yeah. Daredevil is ending, and I'm kind of very hopeful to see, you know, at least somebody make his return to drawing old Hornhead on a variant cover. Like, I really want to see it, you know? Yeah, you know what? I, I know he has. A, I know he has a, an open um, choice on, on the characters he gets to pick. So you know, who knows what he's going to be picking next? I get to, the good part is I get to see them in advance. Oh, <laughs> so yes. I, get to, I get to have some fun with them beforehand. I'm like, oh, that's kind of awesome, you know. <laughs> and it's always interesting to see uh, whatever he's working on at the time because it's really what what excites him the most. So now. Dan, before we wrap this episode up, we want to tell you thank you for speaking with us yet again on the program. 
My pleasure. It's, it's always enjoyable. And again, it's a young adult prose novel, Hide or Seek. Dan, we hope to have you see, uh, sign it and we get to see it at a show. Did we run down what shows you might be going to this coming? Oh, boy. Uh, it, 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 it's a lineup. I'm going to be I'm heading out to Boston tomorrow for Wicked Con. I'll be there. Uh, then, um, let's see now. We're, then we go to Phoenix Fan Fusion uh, in June. And then we go to Washington State Summer Con. Uh, also in June, then I'll, then I think we got San Diego and we got Raleigh, um, and I believe at the end of the year, uh, there's somewhere in between there. I think there's Austin, and uh, Austin, Texas, and uh, and Columbus, Ohio at the end of the year. So and then of course, and then of course you you pepper in New York and San Diego because those are, are givens, and uh, that rounds out a rather aggressive <laughs> schedule. I'll be exhausted. Well, outside some, of uh, but, New York, uh, I was, but yeah. it'll be fun. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a good kind of fun, exhausting fun. I was going to say, if you didn't say New York, I was going to say, damn it, he's nowhere near us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm going to the Catskills, but I'm going on vacation. That's not oh, that much well. I'm doing. <laughs> All right, we won't track you then. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, Dan, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Well, I've got my, I'm, on, uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and then also um, I'm on Twitter, but I don't really look at it much. Um, I'm also, um, easiest way a lot of people get through to me right now is through frankmillerpresents.com. Uh, we have a website. Uh, we also have Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for Frank Miller Presents. Uh, and that's, we've been getting a lot because also part of my convention schedule is actually what I've been doing is I've been actually doing a talent search. I've been doing portfolio reviews. I've been looking for new artists. Um, Frank's been very much in a mentoring style mode. He wants to bring in new people. He wants to see new voices. Um, and we're out there looking at ideas and portfolios. And hopefully with our next round of books, we can bring some of these people in. But um, we, we found a couple of guys um, just recently, and I've already put them to work, which is actually kind of fun. So um, there's a lot of good talent out there again. And I think what, what's interesting is that when I was back at D.C., we had gone done in a lot of talent searches, and it sort of, we sort of went through the well a couple of times. But I feel now, um, with everybody coming out of you know, the pandemic mode and starting to get back out in the world again, we're starting to see a lot more new talent and a lot more different talent, which I think is good because – the only way this industry survives is by bringing new blood, new ideas, new voices into the mix, and really find a way to elevate them in a way that I think draws attention back to, the, to this, this business we love. Now, in regards to the portfolio reviews, what is the biggest bit of advice you should give to you would give to young artists and writers that you know will be at a convention and might see you there? You know, I mean, I'm always looking for I'm always looking for sequential storytelling. Um, I, and I always the one piece of advice I tell everybody. Always show me your best work. Don't show me work that you said, this isn't my best work. <laughs> Be surprised <laughs> how many people say that. Um, or they say to you, uh, I got, you know, the, um, you know, I really rushed doing this or something like that. Because all you see is, is the weak. You never see the best. And so you, the goal is to remove all the weak from it. A thick portfolio doesn't get you the job. A beautiful portfolio gets you the job. For The Marvelist, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Dan DiDio. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior.